Are you wondering how the PCPS stays afloat? I'll tell you. The answer is with contributions from listeners like you. We depend on your support to pay for recording services, audio software, transcription fees, website hosting, and the hours and hours of research, writing, editing, and engineering that go into producing each show. If you'd like to help us keep doing this job that we love, you can join our crew of supporters over on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com and put Pop Culture Preservation Society in the search bubble, and they'll tell you what to do. You can choose the level of support that's right for you, from our superstar level at $5 a month all the way up to our bicentennial level. Yes, you guessed it, at $19.76 a month. In exchange, we'll send you even more PCPS content after the episode conversations, video clips, and even invitations to live virtual events with your hosts. Your support is our accounts payable department, doing all the heavy lifting so we can keep our jobs. We love you guys. Thanks for being here today, and enjoy the show. Um, I could have easily gone down to stand in front of the stage, but I wouldn't. I sat way up high so he wouldn't see me because I was sure if he did, he'd want to marry me. Hello world, there's a song that we're singing. Come on, get happy. A whole lot of love is what we'll be bringing. Welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society, the podcast for people born in the big wheel generation who never needed a booster seat at the dinner table because we had phone books. We believe our Gen X childhoods gave us unforgettable songs, stories, characters, and images. And if we don't talk about them, they'll disappear, like Marshall, Will, and Holly on a routine expedition. And today, we'll be saving the almost universal experience of falling in love for the very first time in a discussion with an actual crushologist who studies the art and science of your first celebrity crush. I'm Carolyn. I'm Kristen. And I'm Michelle. And we are your pop culture preservationists. Our guest today is Dr. Rebecca Tukachinsky Forster, Associate Professor in the School of Communication Studies at Chapman University and author of the book, Parasocial Romantic Relationships, Falling in Love with Media Figures which is one of the world's first books to examine and explain the phenomenon of wanting to marry Chachi. She's going to be our Dr. Joyce brothers today as we share your crush stories, and she explains what they mean. Yeah, you know, we've been calling Kristen the crushologist, not knowing that there was an actual real-life crushologist out there in the world. Dr. Forster, welcome to the Pop Culture Preservation Society. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And you can call me by my first name, Rebecca, or my na- nickname, Riva. If your friends call you Riva, then we're going to call you Riva because we want to be friends with you. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I want to be friends with a real crushologist. So we'll call you Riva. Okay, so um, Riva, you have a great origin story. Can you tell us how you ended up studying celebrity crushes? Sure. Well, my first true love... Is MacGyver. <laughs> at the I love ripe, that so much. At the ripe age of eight, and just if someone young is listening, just want to make sure we're not talking about this new arrogant guy that. Oh, that's right. This one doesn't count. Reboot. No, 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 no. I'm talking about like the original, the real adorable, amazing 
beautiful, smart. <laughs> She's not biased in any way, though. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. and I can keep, keep adding adjectives there uh, for the next. Uh, for the, yeah, so, so so I'm talking about the real, the Richard Dean Anderson MacGyver. And then uh, when I was in my late 20s, when I was uh, uh, nursing uh, my oldest daughter that was quite a colicky baby, uh, to get through those nights, I was I was watching MacGyver all over again. And it oh my was God. just like it was always there. So um, definitely uh, I'm studying something that I... I have experienced myself. <laughs> that is so funny. I love that so much. And MacGyver got you through the middle of the night with the colicky baby. Yes. And, you know, I was, I was uh, uh, kind of jokingly saying, and this is not a scientific statement, okay? It's a joke. But <laughs> just to premise that, uh, that, that, uh, that I was telling myself that I'm doing something good because, you know, love and romance is all associated with uh, the... the uh, oxytocin hormone, right. which is also important in lactation. So I'm actually oh, my milk production. Uh, yes. So oh my God, had I me. only known that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it would have been so much easier. That's great. And imagine, I should have been Reva, watching the Hardy Boys. I'm thinking, Reva, if you had told your eight-year-old self that one day you're going to be watching MacGyver while you're nursing your baby. That's just crazy, like a crazy thought, right? Because you're kind of your eight-year-old self a little bit in those moments of watching the show again. Right. Okay, it also sounds like this is something that has really been ignored by the scientific community in general. Absolutely. So everything that happens um, at younger ages that are not leading to long-lasting you know, marital relationships wasn't considered to be worth researching at all. And even when it was, why study relationships with not real people? Like this, <laughs> the whole language is in the academia is that I'm studying parasocial relationships, which is quasi-social <laughs> relationships. They pretend to be relationships that are not real. Like everyone's talking to me about real relationships versus parasocial relationships because they are not legitimate subject for research because they aren't real. But what I'm saying is that they are parasocial, means they are different, but they are just as real for the person that experiences them. And they can be just as consequential. I love that. Congratulations mm -hmm. to you for finally ringing that bell. I love that. Um, I want to read something from your book, uh, which we said in the beginning is called Parasocial Romantic Relationships, Falling in Love with Media Figures. So we've got that word that you just brought up again, parasocial, parasocial romantic relationships. And these are celebrity crushes, essentially. And you include in the book a letter that somebody wrote to Ann Landers in 1956, which sort of um, exemplifies what you just said about people saying, well, this isn't real. Get over yourself. This is not something to be studied. And so here's the letter that this young woman wrote. It has taken me two weeks to get the nerve to write this letter. I have fallen head over heels in love with a local television star. We've never met, and I've seen him only on the TV screen and in a play. I am 23, a college graduate, and I know the score. For the last two months, I have stopped dating because all men seem childish by comparison. Nothing interests me. I can't sleep, and my modeling job bores me. Please give me some advice. And then here's what Ann Landers says. 
I don't know what you learned in college, but you are flunking the course of common sense. <laughs> like, Ann Landers, you have fallen for a piece of celluloid as unreal as a picture on the wall. The personality you are goofy about on the TV screen is a hoked-up character, and any similarity between him and the real man is purely miraculous. So I'm guessing you would say that that is sort of an unstudied answer to that poor young woman. Well, this was the answer for the longest time. In fact, just to be clear, this letter, I'm quoting it from uh, the 1956 article that introduces the term parasocial relationships to the research community. But it takes another half a century for parasocial romantic relationships become its own area of study. So uh, we now come to understand and appreciate the importance of these experiences. Yes, they are imaginary. They do occur in people's brain, but that doesn't make them not important. Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in your book, you actually provide a history of celebrity crushes because it didn't just start with the Beatles, um, which is probably what a lot of us think. Um, who do you consider the first celebrity crush? That's a great question. And it's actually a fairly recent phenomenon. Uh, researchers in the area of celebrities are talking about uh, the 19th century as being the turning point and maybe Lord Byron being the first celebrity as we think of celebrities and starting the celebrity culture. And he definitely had his admirers and uh, his, he was uh, the, the object of uh, a lot of uh, celebrity crushes and parasocial relationships. But uh, for the book, I was looking for earlier examples and I could see examples from the Shakespearean uh theater with actors uh, in back then being the target of parasocial relationships. Uh, but even going back to ancient Rome uh, with famous rhetoricians or musicians or oh uh, theater performers. <laughs> that famous rhetorician. Yes. You're throwing yourself at that famous rhetorician. I had no idea. I had that no idea. Crazy. That is so funny. Uh, well, for us, we associate uh, celebrities with Hollywood a lot. Um, that's obviously because that's where the entertainment industry is. So can you tell us a little bit about how fandom began in Hollywood? And is it true that movie actors used to be anonymous? That's true. And this is so weird, right? Because yeah. this is like exactly the opposite of what you would think. But the beginning of the cinema... And both the actors and the studios actually did not want to have any publicity around the personas, the actual actors. From the actor's perspective, it was actually a very embarrassing thing. Like a lot of them still had their day job and that would be kind of shameful to work in the show business. And for the studios they had their economic uh, incentive there. They had their business model promoting the content rather than the actors because that made the actors disposable. The moment you make the actors the yeah. center piece of what you're doing, then you're giving them that power, right? Like Jennifer Aniston can request now millions of dollars per episode <laughs> and you now stuck with this budget. But there was this 
bottom up, not top down, bottom up push from the people, from the audiences, really wanting to know more about the people they see in the movies. And they were the ones that were writing to the studios demanding to know the names of the actors. And when they started doing it, it would just open the door immediately to the celebrity culture as we know it. Carolyn, didn't your mom write to a studio asking who some was, random um, guy Clint was? Eastwood, yes. Yeah. So she, um, he was just an extra in um, a movie. I think it was Mr. Smith Goes to the Navy. Wasn't that what it was? Anyway, I think that was the movie. But anyway, she noticed this cute guy um, scrubbing the deck on a scene on a boat. And she was like, I need to find out who that is. So she wrote to the studio. She got back um, an 8 by 10 glossy and a handwritten letter from the president of the one and only Clint Eastwood fan club at that time. It had just started <laughs> because of exactly what you're saying. People were writing in and saying, who is this guy? And she was kind of considers herself an OG fan of Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Wow, so she's, she's part of the history of making she this She is, happen. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. That's true. That, way to go, Lillian. Yeah. Okay, so, um, so how common are celebrity crushes? In other words, are we normal asking for a friend? <laughs> of course we are. We are the, the norm. We are the majority, the vast majority. Woohoo! So, We're like cheering. Mm-hmm. Woohoo! Yeah, yes. It's... it's we are, it's more common than not. So, like, across the studies that I've personally conducted that specifically look at crushes, and I looked at college students, teenagers around the U.S., uh, the general U.S. adult population, and across all of these samples, we're talking about anywhere between 66 and 88% of people <gasps> saying that they had at least one important crush. And mm-hmm. of them about two-thirds had more than one. So there is, a, say, a, a study where in Israel in the 90s where they were interviewing schoolgirls about their, their idols, and the idols are all male singers, right? And <laughs> they, there was just one out of about 100 participants that didn't have one. Oh, my um, God. Wow. So, so we are the norm. We are the norm. norm. And I definitely had more than one. The question should be like, why those two out of 10 don't have the crush? Yeah, that's that's what we should be studying. (laughs) Right. What's wrong with that? Right. (laughs) Okay, let's get to our stories. This is going to be fun. We called on some of our society members to share their first crush stories with us because they are never not entertaining. And we Gen Xers, in my humble opinion, lived in the golden age of teen idol crushes. So there are so many good stories. And there's a good shot that you, dear listener, might identify with something you hear today. And we wanted Dr. Forrester to hear them and tell us a little bit about what we're hearing when we hear these stories or what we're feeling when we experience these stories. Just like today's title says, Your First Crush Explained. So our first story comes from Marianne, and she had it bad for David Cassidy. Here's what she had to say. I think I love you. Hi, my name is Marianne. I'm from Rochester, New York. I had a huge crush crush on David Cassidy. I would say in my actual elementary school years, as well as probably middle school, I hate to admit. I saved all the labels from the Hawaiian punch can um, of the juice that I drank, and I used the term loosely that Hawaiian punch is juice. 
Um, we have to save like six or eight labels and, of course, send in shipping and handling, which my mom did, and promptly in the mail arrived a life-size terry cloth David Cassidy towel that I took everywhere. I think I even laid it on my bed and used it like a blanket. Um, I think I even laid next to it and maybe on top of it, which now sounds so weird and creepy. But the most fun was um, I insisted. Well, I wanted to be married to David Cassidy. And so I insisted that my name wasn't Marianne, that people had to call me, especially my family, Mrs. David Cassidy. So whenever my mom wanted me for dinner or if we had to go somewhere, she would have to call. Hey, Mrs. David Cassidy, it's time for dinner. Or, hey, Mrs. David Cassidy, it's time to go wherever. Oh, my God, Marianne, you're so cute. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love it. Can you just imagine her mom? Because it's obvious they have like a New York accent. So I can just hear her mom, you know, yelling. I can't do accents, but Mrs. (laughs) David Cassidy, let the dog out. or (laughs) Let the dog out. (laughs) So funny. What my research shows is that the onset of those romantic experiences is when children start having romantic and sexual fantasies, which can be way before they actually go on to their actual dating scene or even will admit that they want to do those things. So like this is like the first kind of step in that direction before mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. actually become a sexual being. And, you just going to lay on top of a towel instead. <laughs> well, I, I have to say that she actually, that's a great example of a whole industry that exists today. So in Japan today... Uh, there is a big uh, anime community, like those uh, uh, cartoon characters that some individuals have very strong at- romantic attachment towards those. They choose their character and uh, you can go and buy a five foot or six foot tall pillow with quite racy pictures. You can have both front and back of the pillow. Oh, oh. <laughs> like 3D kind of. And and uh, you can use it on the bed and, uh, you know, to sleep next to you or... <laughs> to fill in the blank. Oh, or you can carry her around, you know. Oh, my God. So, and they would call her wife and it's all very playful. Like, it's people yeah. that we're not talking about someone who doesn't know the difference, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. These are all... Smart people that have this connection and they want to playfully act out on it. And uh, so, so in this regard, uh, she just uh, invented a whole industry that is flourishing. Way to go, Marianne. I mean, we can't imagine at all what, what we're talking about, right? It's not like there's a life-size Sean Cassidy standing right over my shoulder. Right. Which there is, listeners, yes. just by the yes. way. Well, right. Reva, I'd oh, love wow. to share my story with you because just like Marianne, I was married, married to my crush. Um, in eighth and ninth grade, I was Mrs. Simon Laban. And my friends and I were all married to members of Duran Duran. We each had a band member. We could not share um, because polygamy isn't legal in Washington state. And besides, it's gross. (laughs) Um, But we were all in with this. 
Besides the quote-unquote normal crush behavior we all had going on privately, in our group, we wrote daily notes to each other as the wives. For example, one note might have said, why don't you come over for dinner tonight since the boys are on tour? Uh, or, you'll never believe what Simon surprised me with for our anniversary. And we kept this fantasy going for a good year. It's a great story. This experience is oftentimes not solitary. It is a very social phenomenon. It helps you fit with your cycle, social cycle. And it invites a conversation with like same-minded people to join in and, and create and connect with you. And after all, like so you're having all those fantasies in your head, but you want to be able to share them. You want someone to appreciate them. And who else can spend that much time, energy? Right, expand all this energy, but also be tolerant of all of that stuff you want to say. Oftentimes you have this experience of like, no one else gets it, especially as a teen. Uh, and here you have someone with whom you can share this fantasy or mm -hmm. share these experiences. And I know from my research that a lot of time uh, when there are boy bands, for example, One Direction or BTS, the, fan, the group of friends will divide up the, the, the group member and everyone will be paired up with someone else uh, and and then you have this community I definitely got Davy Jones somebody like handed Davy Jones to me because he was the short one as was I so you know we're all watching the show together and like you get Davy and I took it it sounded good to me well, you were lucky because he was the cutest one too, he was the so. cutest one yeah. that was a score yeah yeah you got it and and again all of this is the relationships that we're talking about they are imaginary so sometimes having someone else play with you so to speak helps to enrich your own experience so when Michelle is talking to her friend and and there's telling, oh, you can't imagine what he surprised me with, or the boys are on the tour. It's kind of like maybe you didn't have this idea, but now your friend gives it to you, and it mm -hmm. kind of enhances your own experience. In a bigger way, some individuals like fan fiction, uh, yeah. and there is actually a whole genre of fan fiction that is specifically about you and your celebrity crush. Maybe you don't have as much talent for writing those stories. Maybe you need help with coming up with those scenarios. So those communities can provide you with an opportunity to connect with someone who will write those stories for you. And some actually solicit topics. Huh, I will wow. write it for you. Michelle, tell me what's your fantasy. I'll write it for you. <laughs> oh, wow. I know what I'm going to get you for your birthday. <laughs> I can, I can... I can gladly say and healthily say I've grown out of that now, uh, but at the time, it was really important. <laughs> that would have been really cool when yeah, I was in ninth you, grade. I would have loved that, yeah. Yeah, yeah it would be really mm -hmm. like, I come home and Simon is not there, and, <laughs> and then there, someone knocks on the door and says, Mrs. LeBorn, how are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I kind of just got goosebumps Hire now. I'll admit, do that I got you. goosebumps. I know. I love it. What's so interesting is, um, you know, we have a lot of stories about fantasizing and daydreaming. And my fantasy that I remember wasn't that fantastical. I had a crush on an actor named Jimmy McNichol. And in my case, I saw him like 
coming, he wasn't a celebrity. He was just another friend. And um, he was my boyfriend in middle school. And he would like carry my books and sit next to me in lunch. Um, and we'd go, you know, couple skate at the roller rink. And it was like, he was just that boyfriend that I guess I wanted to have. And almost like you said earlier, tiptoeing into those waters before maybe I was like ready to have a real boyfriend, but I could think about, oh, what would I do when he has to hold my hand? And um, yeah, so it was a little different twist on the fantasy, but nonetheless, we had some fun times. You and Jimmy. That's right. Absolutely. No, this is exactly right. It is an opportunity for us to rehearse and develop those scripts and develop this idea of who we are. I was fantasizing about roller skating with Jimmy McNichol. One of our friends, Julie Joe, um, was fantasizing about a relationship with the bionic man. Here is her story. Yeah, by the time I was uh, barely a preteen in the late 1970s, I had pretty big dreams. I was dreaming about getting a perm, driving a car, becoming a jazz dancer, world traveling journalist. And, of course, marrying my first Hollywood crush, Steve Austin, that super-powered cyborg in the TV series The Six Million Dollar Man, played by Lee Majors. Remember him? But, boy, not only did I dream about marrying that Six Million Dollar Man, I actually grabbed a few dandelions from the front yard, taped a long piece of toilet paper to the top of my head, checked to make sure none of my eight siblings were anywhere in the vicinity, and then slowly walked down the hallway between my bedroom and my parents' bedroom and bowed to love and honor him all the days of my life. Oh God! So she'd stage a little wedding in the upstairs hallway. So, so these are great examples of how we are using our imagination to develop those relationships, maintain those relationships in our head, and in doing so, we are developing those scripts. We are developing our actual romantic expectations. We're solidifying our actual romantic identity. Who am I? What do I look for in a partner? What do I expect a relationship to look like? What do I want to do in my relationship? What do I like and what do I don't like? Try it on safely. And that's what you've been essentially doing, big or, or small, be it the wedding or be it just the holding hands and, you know, Netflix and chill before there was Netflix. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is profound what you just said. All of those things that we wouldn't have access to. I mean, you can't just jump into, you can't get married when you're 12, right? You, I guess right. the only way to, to figure out what it would be like is to pretend. Right. And that's exactly like what we do with all the other roles in our lives, right? When you're playing family, when you're playing right. doctor, right? This is just yeah. another aspect of it, of figuring out of who you, who are you? What do you wow. look for? What do you want? Are there any fantasies that you saw over and over again, things that kind of crop up in a lot of people's heads? Absolutely. So I would say there, there's one big category of the meetup. How did you meet that person and there are two major narratives there one is that picked from the crowd like you went to an event and you saw that celebrity and he saw you and he you know elevated you from everyone else who wasn't you know worthy you stood out to him and then there is the regular people which is you don't imagine you don't imagine them as that celebrity status you just think about them as another 
kid on campus that you just ran into on the way to the cafeteria. And then there is the the whole category of imagining the time that you spent together. And we can, again, think about it in two different ways. One is imagining how you join that celebrity's world. So going on a tour with them and living their life. Or how they join your world. So how they sit with you on your couch in your apartment, talking to, say, my college students, how they imagine going with their to their grandma's birthday. Oh, cute. their Christmas party. Bringing okay. Harry Styles yeah. to your grandma's birthday party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but, but the key is that you imagine them like as a real person and you have those regular real life moments with them. The key, though, is that most of them are really positive. Like, there are very few people that, or maybe not few people, but very small percent of the fantasies are about challenges, are about the Oh, that's interesting. And even those are usually resolved in some fantastic ways, I would say, as in, you know, Justin Bieber runs down the stairs and... Uh, after me, like, goes bare feet after me on the street trying to uh, get me to forgive him for his uh, infidelity or something like that. So when there was a challenge, like, they will be the ones trying to get you back. And um, and that's not necessarily a good kind of recipe for real relationships. So there is a question there, like, what is that script that you're practicing when you are mm-hmm. having those idealized relationships everything is wonderful and beautiful and rosy if something goes wrong they are the ones that are going to do everything to get me back because they love you so much the fa- yes. that's the fantasy that they love you so much exactly exactly my my fan well i had a lot of beach fantasies um, Davy Jones riding horseback with no shirt on. And I'm pretty sure those fantasies were just handed to me by the monkeys. They out, the monkeys were at the beach all the time. So I think I just extrapolated. But my Andy Gibb fantasy always cracks me up because it was so boring. We had an apartment and we would just be like walking around in our bathrobes and like eating cereal. And that's, that's it. There was nothing like dramatic or romantic about it, but we had bathrobes on. So it could be that we were naked under the bathrobes. I just didn't want to say that. Well, that's the mon- no, no, I think it's a very profound fantasy because it's like making it the mundane, like the rom- romantic of the mundane, that the idea that he's just a regular person. That yeah, you he's my just, guy. You being just a regular person mm-hmm. to him. Like mm-hmm. that elevates you so much it brings your relationship <gasps> to such a special place oh my god you just changed everything like you just changed the whole way i thought about my funny bathroom fantasy <laughs> yeah. that yeah. is so interesting okay you also mentioned um romantic identity let's talk about romantic identity a little bit because um t- that made me think of tamar and tamar had a very strong identity for herself and she chose a crush to go along with that identity so here's tamar's story my family was the first and for a long time the only jewish family in our town costa mesa california in the 60s and 70s the fact that most of our neighbors had never met any Jews before inspired my parents to make it a family mission to reverse any stereotypes or misconceptions that our neighbors might have about Jews. 
We were such an anomaly that for years, the local newspaper featured a photo of us celebrating each Jewish holiday and included a blurb that my dad wrote providing an explanation. This infamy led to the local church inviting us to do what I called Jewmonstrations at least once a month for years. My sisters completely rebelled, but I became the self-proclaimed ambassador of the Jewish people, and I took it super seriously. So even though every boy I grew up with was a blonde surfer and all of my friends had crushes on David Cassidy, Leif Garrett, John Travolta, all the guys on the cover of Tiger Beat magazine, I went in a totally different direction because I was looking for a Jewish crush and there was none to be found in my town. So I spent my time daydreaming about my imaginary future husbands from the limited pool of Jewish guys that I'd seen on TV and in the movies. It started when I saw Willy Wonka and I totally fell for Gene Wilder. From the moment he did the fake out with the cane into the somersault, he was the one for me. But my fantasy life did expand after I saw Fiddler on the Roof. I could have chosen Matilda the Taylor, but instead I knew that I belonged with Perchik, the revolutionary. I would have gladly followed him to Siberia after he was exiled and imprisoned by the Tsar. Later, my heart nearly stopped when I started watching a new TV show and saw that the guy who played Perchik was now playing Starsky in Starsky and Hutch. I knew he was hot way before everybody else did. I never talked about my fantasy Jewish husbands with my friends because they would not have understood. So I would just say, oh yeah, Sean Cassidy is so cute out loud. But in my diary, I would write about the cute babies I was going to have with Willy Wonka or Perchik. Or babies with Willy Wonka or Perchik. Oh my God. The Oompa Loompas. Oh, I love it. Ugh. Right? <laughs> This is such an amazing story in so many ways, and it highlights so many important things about media, and one of them is the importance of representation and diversity mm -hmm. in the media, mm -hmm. uh, because um, this demonstrates how it's important for everyone to be able to see themselves and to see their sources of inspiration, their role models themselves. So if you belong to any ethnic, racial, religious group, you want to be able to see yourself, and that is an important component of who you are and how you are perceived by others around you. And I think this story really exemplifies that. So for Tamar, she was really um, in a point where her Jewish identity was constantly under the magnifying glass and everyone is watching, and she has whatever she does, it's a statement. Right? She either rejects or embraces that identity. So she made this choice, as she was saying, to, to embrace this identity. Those things help her solidify who is she going to be? What does she want for herself? Is she going to go through this extra effort to end up with a Jewish boyfriend? Is that important to her in real life? Afterward. I mean, suddenly that elevates her experience to something really, really... I mean, it's an, such an integral part of her development to have Perchik. Right. And Gene Wilder. And to, so you're to your point about representation. What that means is if there isn't adequate representation, somebody's identity will be affected. Absolutely. Exactly. It is. It's going to force them to say to do something that is not consistent with their identity. Yeah, uh, it is. Questions of representations are extremely important in many different ways. And this is just one of them. But. In this context, I think it's very clear. Like, what would she do if she couldn't find a representation at all? 
right. or worse, if she belongs to a social group that is negatively depicted in the media, and all right. of the representations that she can find are representations of, say, low breakers, like gangsters or mm-hmm. violent individuals. Like, mm-hmm. What would it do to her? Like, what kind of stories could she imagine? What scenarios does it put her into? You can turn that around and make assumptions about yourself based on that. Matchmaker, matchmaker, plan me no plans. I'm in no rush. Maybe I'd learn. Playing with matches, a girl can get burned. So bring me no ring, prove me no boom, find me no fine, catch me no cat, unless he's a man. Um, so really, our crush tells us a little bit about who we are. And that makes me think, I'm looking at you, Carolyn, because you have the life-size Sean Cassidy behind you. So mm-hmm. I want to talk about Sean Cassidy, because my vision of him in 1977, and you can tell me if you agree, Carolyn, was okay. he was clean cut, he was very soft, and he was very smooth. He was curious. He was a, he was, you know, a mystery dude. He was going to solve mysteries. He was family-oriented, because he worked with his brother, Parker Stevenson, he was smart. He was nice to Nancy Drew, and he could sing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so he was a does, Renaissance man. He was. He was a total Renaissance man. So I. It, that's so funny when you put it in those terms, Reva, because that makes me look at Carolyn and myself and go, "Huh, what does that say about us?" Well, I mean, it says that you are attracted to nice people. I think it says <laughs> something nice about yourself. You have good taste, guys. But. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. I absolutely do think that's true. And it makes me wonder about, um, okay, no offense to the people who like Leif Garrett out there. It makes me wonder about the people who like Leif Garrett because he was the guy who was the horned up boyfriend of Christian McNichol on Family who was pressuring her into having sex. He's the bad boy. So yeah. why were, why did people want to... I, it's just something I've always wondered about. So, 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 so there are a couple answers. I think this is a fascinating question. And there are a couple of different things. One is that fantasy is a s- safe space, a space where you can experiment with things you don't want to do in real life. Like you like watching a horror movie, perhaps, maybe not you, but some people do. And those people don't necessarily want that to happen in their personal situation, right? So the this is actually a fantasy space where you can do safely things you wouldn't do otherwise. That's one. The other answer is that what are the fantasies involved here? So because maybe the fantasy is that I'm going to run away with a bad boy and be bad like I cannot be in real life. But some I know from talking to my research participants their fantasy is like, I'm going to rescue him. I'm oh. going to... He's mm-hmm. a poor soul. He mm-hmm. just never met the right woman. And I will nurture... So I'm going to uh, uh, to save him. Save him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, that is... Seriously, you just answered a question that I've been having since 1979. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> so our listener, Shannon, had a fantasy she created for the benefit of her friends at school. And she was really little, only like six years old. Uh, So let's hear from Shannon. And they called it puppy love. Hi, I'm Shannon, and I'm from Illinois. When I was in the second or third grade, I just knew that I was the biggest Donny Osmond fan out there, purple socks and all. So one day I decided to get out an ink pen and my Donny album 
And then with my best cursive writing, sign Donnie's name to my album cover. The next day, I took it to school to show my friends my autographed copy of my Donnie Osmond album. I'm sure, pretty sure, I fooled everyone. It just shows the importance of, like, it is an imaginary relationship. Like, she knows the truth, right? But she creates this imaginary reality and she wants to live in it. And she wants the buy-in from other people, too. And once again, it all goes back to the idea that it starts earlier than you think. It's especially true for girls because emotional intelligence of boys, they are a little bit behind, lagging a bit behind the girls. So by the time the girls are ready, like their options are dating much older boys, which comes with its own set of risks uh, and is not socially appropriate. Or they can hang out with boys their age that know nothing, right? So the alternative (laughs) is how do you satisfy those romantic needs? Because you can't satisfy them with your peers and you can't or shouldn't satisfy them with older boys and this is the fantasy space that addresses those oh my god that's beautiful that mm-hmm. is a beautiful concept right there right it makes so it's much really, sense yeah doesn't it mm-hmm. oh well reva i had an incident with one of my very first crushes uh where that safety net that you just mentioned was ripped out um from under me um and this incident has stuck with me for decades when I was about nine years old, I was infatuated with Scott Bayo. And my family went to Magic Mountain one day. And upon arrival, we learned that Scott Bayo was going to be doing a show there that day. And you'd think I would have been ecstatic, right? But I was instantly terrified. Like, I remember kind of not wanting to go. And I was instantly mortified because I had worn my hair in pigtails that day with ribbons. So as we're parking the car, I'm furiously pulling them out and trying to brush my hair with my fingers. Um, And then when we got to the show, which didn't have a ton of people, go figure, um, (laughs) I could have easily gone down to stand in front of the stage, but I wouldn't. I sat way up high so he wouldn't see me because I was sure if he did, he'd want to marry me. And I can remember (laughs) to this day very vividly a distinctly scared feeling I had in my tummy when he came out. I mean, he was suddenly real, and all those feelings I had for him became really, really scary. Exactly. The fantasy is sometimes the point, right? You don't really want to act on your fantasy. You wanted to stay in that imaginary realms. I know from talking to different participants in my research about quite a few people who would not want to go and see in person their celebrity crush of, for a variety of reasons, all of which go to, I don't want to ruin my fantasy, right? So, right. for example, so, so Michelle, you felt like, oh, he will want to marry you, and then you'll have this, like, real-life predicament <laughs> that I want to imagine about marrying him, but I'm actually not up to it yet. <laughs> <laughs> But, but some would say, like, I'm afraid that he's going to be lame. I'm afraid that he's not going to yeah. pick me out of the crowd. Like, I want to keep fantasizing that he will pick me out of the crowd. 
and I will be so heartbroken if I put him up to this test and fail and he will not pick me. I talked to fans who did go to see their celebrity crush and it was a lame experience that they, it was like, okay, meet and greet and he just snaps a picture, move on, next person, it's like an assembly line and he doesn't see you and that totally crushed them. Like they uh -huh. didn't really believe that he will marry them, but he, they thought that something like some level of acknowledgement will be there. Um, we also want to share a, a really good story from um, one of our society members named Shane, who uh, shares a crush with both Kristen and me. You might have guessed it. He was in love with this man behind me, Sean Cassidy. <laughs> He watched the Hardy Boys every Sunday night, and his fantasy, this is really cute, you guys, was that he was their cousin, Mark Hardy. And Parker Stevenson and Sean Cassidy would invite him, Mark Hardy, to help him help them solve their mystery. So he was like the third detective. Uh, but Shane slash Mark Hardy wasn't allowed to have a Sean Cassidy poster on his wall like Kristen and I were because he was a boy. And his parents thought that that was inappropriate. So Shane, Mark Hardy, pretended to love the Hardy Boys books. Instead of just one particular Hardy Boy, he was going to love these books. He walked around reading Hardy Boys books, where, and whenever his mom could see him, he had a book open. And then she thought it was the books that he loved instead of just Sean Cassidy. So guess what? She then let him put a Hardy Boys poster on his wall. So eventually Shane just quietly swapped out the Hardy Boys poster that his mom let him hang up to a poster of his true love, Sean Cassidy. Sean Cassidy. Oh. Isn't that sweet? So great. It's, like, it's a bittersweet story. It right? is. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and it exemplifies the, again, importance of these experiences and the importance of media in general in the lives of everyone and especially groups that can be marginalized and, uh, in this case, LGBTQ individuals. Uh, and having, again, representation, having uh, someone they can relate to, and the importance of media in the coming out stories of a lot of individuals. A lot of the time when you think about celebrity crushes, you kind of stereotypically picture this uh, teenage girl thing, but it's not a teenage girl thing. Uh, men, a lot of men, both uh, gay and straight, have celebrity crushes, and they are just as important to them as they are for women. And arguably for LGBTQ individuals, they are even more important, especially if they, by the sound of it, from what his family is like, just from this one, you know, two second story, I don't want to pass a judgment, but it sounds like it wasn't necessarily an environment where he had too many opportunities to explore his sexuality and experiment sexually. Uh, and in this case, this fantasy world is particularly important to develop that. I know that uh, parasocial romantic experiences like this could be uh, sometimes what helped individuals realize for the first time that there might be LGB, that they uh, are attracted to same-sex individuals. For others, it wasn't something new. They already knew that, but, but it gave them a canvas to experiment right. and develop those fantasies in a safe way. In a safe way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's really important, I think. So we went, um, Shane met us, 
at a concert for Sean Cassidy in Chicago. And he had never seen him in concert, had never seen him um, in person at all. So we went to this concert in a pretty intimate kind of setting, wasn't a ton of people. And Shane was right up at the stage and Sean Cassidy shook his hand and Shane got a little emotional, I think we'd say, as did we Very, to see yeah. him experience mm-hmm. this. I just watched, I was sitting across the table from Shane and we're all, you know, dancing and clapping and Shane just sat there staring and then I just, and I have this on video and he's just staring and he just wipes a tear away. Yeah. He just was, was so overcome by um, yeah. the, the, the merging of this young boy who, who wasn't allowed to crush on him to now being married to, you know, a husband and um, surrounded by a wonderful community of friends and very um, being able to be very open in who he is and who he likes and who he crushed on. And I think it was just very profound for him to be there. It mm-hmm. was. Yeah. That's, that's such a wonderful story. Isn't it beautiful? And it, I think it sort of exemplifies what you said. You know, this is all about our being able to experiment with our romantic identities. And how do you do that when you don't, when you're not allowed, when you're literally not allowed to express that? And so that's where these fantasies become even more important for somebody like Shane. Exactly. Exactly. I couldn't have said it better. I also think... The other thing that I love about this story is how much ingenuity that Shane showed in order to do what he needed to do, which was have Sean Cassidy on his wall. He he said he never read a single book. He had like the whole set. He had like 50 Hardy Boys books and he didn't actually read a single word. He just walked around with them open. (laughs) Good for you, Shane, for taking care of yourself, right? to one of the biggest myths. You kind of mentioned this already that people have about crushes. And we recently heard from a new listener who was so excited to see that we had an episode devoted to Christy McNichol because Christy McNichol was his first crush. And he said it started during summer break in junior high when the pirate movie was in constant rotation on HBO and he could not look away. It was extremely strong. And it's a really important part of his growing up. He still holds on to that piece of his growing up um, really closely. But it sounds like the people around him are kind of surprised to learn this little nugget of his past. We definitely see this cultural perception that celebrity crushes is a girl thing, a teenage girl thing. And nothing can be further from truth. Really, the statistic shows that the crushes are equally prevalent among men and women and the intensity of the crush is indistinguishable among men and women. I find it in my studies and I see evidence of it in other studies. So what we see here is more like of a kind of trying to stigmatize celebrity crushes because by feminizing them and saying that's something that girls do, uh, which is both derogatory to women and also tries to (laughs) reduce the importance of this social phenomenon Mm -hmm. and um it goes back to the idea of women being childish and being emotional and being like overdoing things um diminishing women's sexuality not giving it the due consideration speaking of childish 
Just kidding. <laughs> Good segue. Uh, someone I know very, very well had a few important crushes, but you might be a little surprised when you hear who they were. Someone very close to Michelle. Hello, preservationist. I'm using a voice scrambler because my crush is kind of embarrassing. When I was a boy, I fell hard for what I thought was the most stunning woman I'd ever seen. Sweet Polly Purebred. I don't know what it was about her. Her shapely body, her striking features, her sweet singing voice. Whatever it was, she played an important part of my formative years. I obviously grew out of that phase and realized I only wanted her because her constant need to be saved played into my own need for validation. So as I aged, I found another more appropriate and healthier crush. Made Marion from Robin Hood. <laughs> I love that he grows up. Into Maid Marian. Well, and she, she's, she's a not woman. the only one. I hear, I hear people crushing on Robin Hood, the Disney Robin Hood, the little fox from Robin Hood, all the time. Like, that must have been a sexy movie, this little cartoon. <laughs> right. So, like, why bother, like, censoring anything? Because the Disney <laughs> cartoon fox can be... Yeah, that's right. To be your crush. That's right. <laughs> that's right. No, but you know, you 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 can say like, well, how can that even happen? What I like to think about it is that, that fiction and reality are not dichotomous. They are not two separate, distinct categories. It is a continuum. So now, presumably, Brian, right? Yes, right? Brian. I'm calling him Brian. No, no. No, his, um, let's call him Ryan. Ryan. I mean, Ryan. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I can also say he, we know for a fact that he married a very non-fictional woman. Drew's probably out on that one. Because that's the point I'm trying to make. Like, how much of the woman he married is real versus fiction? Of mm. The picture he has in his head. Right. So the joke. What I like to say is like, you know, everyone is married to a fictional character. Just some people don't admit. Um, All of our relationships have some imaginary component. When you have those, when, first of all, you have those imaginary conversations in your head. Who you think your significant other is, is in part a fiction that you wrote in your head. And in a way, there is no difference between Simon LeBron and a fictional character because they are both who you dress them in your head. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yes. So in this case, it's also a cartoon character, but it doesn't make her less real than Simon LeBron that you don't know and you actually have no idea who he actually is. At best, you know what the PR put together to make you think who he is. Right. Mm-hmm. How is that different from the fictional character that, that is actually drawn by hand or by generated by a computer? It's all ultimately about the story you tell, tell in your own head. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That is I have true. to sit on that. That's, that's I know. stuff. <laughs> I know. Luckily and I now I'm realizing <laughs> that I think I might be in love with Joe Hardy and, and not necessarily oh, Sean Cassidy. Yeah. Because the mystery that. solving was a big part of it. Yeah. And that is, like you say, a fiction. Right. Well, and it's the same way that I 
even though I loved Scott Baio's albums and that kind of stuff, I know that I was infatuated with Chachi. And I loved Chachi, the character, because people ask me all the time, and then did you love Charles in Charge? And then, and I say, no, no, I, no, I loved, I loved Scott Baio as Chachi because now I'm realizing yeah, it's it was all about Chachi. It was Chachi. It was I mean, I wanted to. Mm-hmm. I wanted. You know, we we just had a Happy Days episode uh, we recorded, and I was saying, you know, that wedding of Joni and Chachi that ended the whole series. I I imagined him saying those vows to me. Yeah. I was marrying Chachi. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. I think you touched on a couple of important things. One is that I do know sometimes people are how having this relationship specifically with a character. And sometimes the character is just a gate in, like when you run out of content and you want more kind of, you start like, okay, what else did this actor do? Okay, so like, okay, Mm -hmm. I'm done with all the MacGyvers. (laughs) I'm not a science fiction person, but okay, gateway. You need to go to General Hospital. He was on General Hospital, Reva. He was on General Hospital. I know, for a I'm very just, long time. I, That's I, another one you could watch. Right? No, absolutely. Like, I, trust me, everything Richard Dean Anderson has been explored. Uh, <laughs> In her nursing chair. Trust me, I get that. I get that. Well, because, Reva, you know, we've talked about um, that these crushes and our... T- you know, younger days and our teens and our tweens, um, and even as young as five or six um, year, years, year olds can experience crushes. But apparently that applies to adults, too. And can you expand on that? Not like we have any experience with adult crushes, right, girls? Again, asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah, exactly. So, so adult crushes are extremely common. Um, a lot of people have them. I would say that they don't necessarily uh, rank as the most important or consequential ones. Some of the ones that people experience in their youth might leave a bigger impression on them, but definitely they are important, as important in some ways, uh, because they provide so many, they they serve so many different functions. They can uh, be an opportunity for escape. They can be an opportunity for um, a placeholder when you need a relationship or when you are not ready for a relationship yet. Um, So, it still has a lot of important, significant places in people's lives. As adults. I mean, so, okay, so I'm just looking at Michelle and Carolyn. That means we're normal. All of you listeners, we're all I mean, normal. We can all come out term. of the closet. That's right. It's all relative. <laughs> because we continue to evolve. It's not just in puberty that we transition into something new. And let's face it, the 50s are a huge transition. It's like it, the 50s are really like a second coming of age. Um, so it would make sense then that we might experience some adult crushes in our 50s. And for the most part, uh, people just know that this is just fun and I want to sleep yeah. with a pillow of the anime character or <laughs> I want to, I'm 40 years old, but I enjoy looking at this cute 20 year old celebrity and there's nothing wrong about that. 
So the last word is that our crushes, whether they be our first crushes, our childhood crushes, our teenage crushes, or our midlife crushes, can help us in a multitude of ways. They can help us reach for something we're missing, or they can be satisfying and engaging in their own right. They can be deep, meaningful, and potentially highly consequential relationships. So, Sean Cassidy, if you're listening, I will not apologize for loving your golden retriever hair or the tight sands about slacks. Apparently, we just all wanted to be like you because you're such a nice guy. So if there's still time, I think we should still get married. Love, Kristen. Um, and a big thank you to Dr. Rebecca Tukachinsky Forrester for being our guest today. And a big thank you to you, our listeners. Keep on crushing, y'all. And if you'd like to hear more about who our adult crushes are, our supporters on Patreon will be getting a bonus episode where we spill it all. Did you know that our newsletter shares lots of fun information of things that we're crushing on, like movies, books, TV shows, hobbies? And in this case, um, our next newsletter will include information about what we're loving, which is Dr. Forster's book, Parasocial Romantic Relationships, Falling in Love with Media Figures. So we'll have a link to that in our newsletter, and you can sign up for that newsletter on our website, poppreservationist.com, or in our link tree on Instagram. And thank you all for listening to our podcast and for sharing our podcast with others. We've recently received some very nice DMs and emails telling us how much you love our conversations and that you have shared the PCPS with a lot of friends, and that's hugely appreciated by us. And thank you to those of you who follow rate and review where you listen. That will help others who you don't know to find us. And to those of you who take your love of our show and society to the next level by supporting us on Patreon, thank you for literally keeping the PCPS trucking. We honestly could not do this without you. And today we are giving a shout out to patrons Shelly, Michelle, nice name, Susan, <laughs> Tracy, Joanne, and Stephen. And if you'd like to check out our Patreon page and see the fun and exclusive content our patrons get each month, like printables, bonus audio and video content, pop culture card packs, trivia games, behind-the-scenes photos, and more, just click the Patreon link in our show notes, uh, or you could go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, or you can go to our Linktree link on our Instagram page. In the meantime, let's raise our glasses for a toast to Dr. Forrester, courtesy <laughs> of the cast of Three's Company. Two good times. Two happy days. To Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> Cheers. 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 <laughs> The information, opinions, and comments expressed on the Pop Culture Preservation Society podcast belong solely to Carolyn, the Crushologist, and Hello Newman, and are in no way representative of our employers or affiliates. And though we truly believe we are always right, there is always a first time. The PCPS is written, produced, and recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, home of the fictional WJM Studios and our beloved Mary Richards. Nanu Nanu, keep on trucking, and may the force be with you. 